It's the TEH podcast, episode number 197. I'm Leo Notenboom of askleo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of macmost.com. How's it going, Gary? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, looks like we got. I miss Denver already. You know that? Oh, yeah. I, I enjoyed my time down there. It was kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I, I enjoy living here. It's a good place. And uh, it's been a lot of fun living closer to, even closer to downtown. Uh, right now i will admit one of the things i am jealous about is that um you have so much so close to you um Mm. in in walking distance and even you know you know short transit rides or whatever um here um you know if i anything just about anything i need to do it's you know get in the car and go somewhere get in the car somewhere so yeah and it's interesting i saw a uh actually saw a tiktok the other day uh by the other day i mean yesterday i saw it and Mm -hmm. the uh, person was debating whether travel was like we should travel at all right yeah Uh, one of the things they said is that um you know are you really changing yourself if when you travel you go to museums but you don't go to museums when you're at home and i'm like well i've actually been to two museums (laughs) in the last seven days so i guess maybe i'm exempt from that one Uh, there because i actually do go to them yeah, and and like I said, you probably walked to them both. So I I did indeed walk to them both. It's funny. I did run across an article um, like yesterday or the day before, something like that, that was talking about um, bike friendly and and how uh, cities or or suburbs or small cities or villages are are different in different countries. And one of the things that, of course, I'm drawn to it because they were talking about the Netherlands, Netherlands being an extremely bike friendly country. Yes, and. Um, uh, one of the things they pointed out was that, yeah, you know, there's a lot of people, um, but their their living situations is, are different. They don't have, you know, lots of large houses on large pieces of property. Their villages just has a lot of more people in in again a comfortable a comfortable setup. Um, but that means that all of the services and such that people are needing are tend to be really close, tend to be, you know, again, mm-hmm. within walking distance or in their case within biking distance. Um, and it's funny because one of the things uh, that struck me, gosh, uh, I want to say the first time I was there, but that's not true. Um, when I returned to Holland for the first time after probably a couple of decades, uh, which is now probably about already six or seven years ago, one of the things that just dawned on me is for a country with so many people, um, there's a tremendous amount of open space. There's a tremendous amount of farmland. Mm. Um, and it's dotted with all of these villages that have, you know, basically everything people need. So they don't necessarily need to do a lot of traveling to go far. Anyway, just kind of interesting. So, yeah. uh, you know what? We should start off with AI. Yeah, why not? You know, we're <laughs> going to end up there. Um, there was an interesting story uh, the other week. Um, just, and it's a good example of how, People are jumping on the bandwagon of either loving or hating AI um, without actually understanding it. Um, and this is happening a lot in mainstream media. And I think with this particular big story of AI, it's happening also in specialized media. You know, right. tech news bloggers and such uh, have been clearly not, you know, not completely understanding the topic here. Um, in, in this story in particular, you may have seen it. It was that there's there's be coming out uh, soon a new Beatles song, right? So the idea is it's going to take a bunch of different things from the past, different recordings. Uh, uh, Paul McCartney's kind of was talking about it the other day, and one of the things they're taking is a recording from a cassette tape 
uh, that John Lennon had had recorded something on a little bit of music. And apparently, I guess he wrote on it for Paul or give this to Paul or something like that uh, at some point in like the last year of his life. And Yoko Ono gave it to Paul later on. Mm -hmm. And it's got a little bit of him singing something on it. And uh, so it's not a like uh, like a recording studio thing. There's a bunch of other noise and music and other stuff uh, there in addition to him singing. So the idea is here they're going to take a John Lennon's voice uh, from that tape. Mm -hmm. as part of this new Beatles song. Um, but the story is they're going to use AI to do it. And then immediately, as you would expect, a ton of people jumped on board and said, <laughs> you're going to have John Lennon's voice recreated by AI and singing. So in other words, a, an AI impersonator of John Lennon uh, singing on the song, not really right. John Lennon. That's incorrect, though. Yeah. That's not what's happening. It's I, it's easy to jump to that conclusion, especially after just reading the headline. But in this case, the AI is actually not singing. The AI is acting as a sound engineer. Right. And instead of maybe a sound engineer is spending years of their life trying to isolate <laughs> John Lennon's voice off of this, you know, tiny piece of tape, uh, you, know, you know, microsecond by microsecond, um, the AI was employed to do that, uh, to extract the voice just you know away from the rest of the sounds which is something you know music uh, music is really interesting a lot of people don't understand a lot of how that works like i've been asked before it's like oh i have an audio recording of you know how can i separate the guitar and the drums from the vocals it's like you, you can't right. <laughs> you know well, this is recorded in a studio on multiple tracks and you have those multiple tracks you really can't do it so how's it done well usually sound engineers spend a lot of time working with a track that, where everything is melded into one audio uh, mm -hmm. track. And they spend a lot of time doing that. Sometimes it's recreated. I know there's a lot of sampling out there. It's actually just recreated the sound using the instruments. And it's like, but it sounds just like the little guitar riff in this song. It's like, yeah, because they wanted it to sound just like it. So well, you know. I, I wonder too, if sometimes um, this reminds me of um, a couple of weeks ago when I got the episode number wrong yeah. um, and Connie was able to snatch a snippet of me saying the right number and moving it into a different place yeah. in the recording. Um, that same kind of thing, sampling a sound from one part of the recording. So, you know, you've got absolutely everything exactly the same, right. including the acoustics and pasting it into where it needs to go. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if you think of a picture, you know, you take a picture of a mountain range and there's a tree in front of you. And then you say, oh, it'd be great to get rid of that tree. Well, you can get rid of the tree very easily, but it leaves a blank space in the picture yes. where the tree was. <laughs> so how do you fill in the mountains? Well, you can't, but you can't, unless you go back and take another picture, you can't really do it. Um, so what happens is either you sample other parts of the mountain range right. and you kind of build it yourself manually. There's new techniques where AI can kind of guess as what, you know, what the mountain range looked like behind the tree, yep. but it's not going to be perfect. But audio is weird because audio, if, you know, it does, when one sound is there over another and they're using say the same frequencies, like your voice actually uses some of like where the baseline is, it's like, oh, the same frequencies there. It's not opaque. It's not like the tree blocking out the landscape. It's like if the tree was semi-transparent. Yes. You know, it's like a plate of glass, you know, like a plate of colored glass blocking out the landscape. It's blending those things, which in ways makes it harder, but also makes it possible where you can't tell what's behind the tree. Right. You can actually in audio, you do have the data there to figure out, you know, John Lennon's voice amongst other things. 
And yeah, so it's AI that's doing it. And, um, but, you know, beyond that individual example, it's just, uh, it's one of those things where, boy, if I, if I, with my kind of uh, 1990s computer science degree, uh, knowledge of AI and, and reading lots of articles about it since uh, can easily pick out times when uh, people in, the, in you know mass media are making mistakes about AI. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure I'm missing even more. Sure, yeah. you know there are other people that oh that sounds reasonable and then it's like no they're still getting it wrong. I just don't know enough <laughs> myself because I'm not an AI researcher. So yeah, be as you would say in your um, in your weekly newsletter, um, you be skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. No, uh, it's it is interesting. I I saw that article. Uh, I think I saw something about it last week. I don't know that it's the same one you saw, but I definitely mm -hmm. saw the topic. Um, and uh, I caught on to the fact right away that oh, this is a recording that already existed. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so it's and I knew right away then that it wasn't going to be an AI synthesis of John Lennon's voice. It was something else. And I think that that's part of the complexity of of what we're calling AI because. Because AI is being um, uh, applied to so many different things. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be fair, AI certainly could synthesize John yes. Lennon's voice. I mean, we saw that here on this episode where I had it synthesize your voice and my voice, and mm -hmm. it did an okay job, and I'm sure it's only going to get better. But it can be used for so many more things. Uh, the, the canonical example I use a lot because I, it gives me a lot of hope for AI um, is in medicine, right, where it's, it's doing a better job of analyzing x-rays than uh, humans are. Um, that's not to say it's uh, um, you know the, the, the final word, but um, it is still doing a great job of pre-sorting uh, um, um, x-rays for certain types of cancers and other kinds of things, and then feeding it onto a human for final validation. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that it's being used for this kind of track isolation or after the fact track isolation and noise removal and whatever else is going on with the original tape, that makes so much sense. It mm -hmm. really does. And it's in, in a sense, it's not, it's not, doing what people are up in arms about. It's not adding anything. If anything, it's removing so yeah. that what's left is, in fact, uh, what was there to begin with, the original voice of John Lennon from, gosh, I don't know how many years ago. Yeah. But yeah, I look forward to hearing the song. I'm hoping, what I'm hoping they'll do somewhere is um, give us a side-by-side. -side. In other words, you know, let us listen to the original tape mm -hmm. um, in all of its messed up glory and then let us listen to the cleaned up John Lennon vocal. That would be nice. Yeah, uh, maybe think... some sort of a, a documentary about it or, you know, documentary short or something about it. It would be great to see a little bit more of the process, mm -hmm. considering that, that uh, you know, I don't, I don't get any other Beatles songs. I'm surprised. I know years ago uh, there was one released that they had some recording bits of, and there was also right. some John Lennon uh, recordings from that. Um, so I don't think they're, I, I'm surprised there's another one that they were able to figure out how to make, mm -hmm. um, be, but I'll be surprised if we ever see one after this. So it'd be great if they spent some time going over the, the sure. details of this. And, but I do think that the, the, the thing that people are up in arms about for this, mm -hmm. while it is not accurate for this, it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't know that it'll be the Beatles just because it's too big a target, but, um, I suspect that somewhere along the lines, um, AI will become the new Milli Vanilli, right? They're going to be um, uh, generating songs that using the voices of individuals who never actually sang the song. Um, and it'll be interesting. 
And I will say that I have an ain't it cool uh, for later in the show that um, feeds into this wonderfully. <laughs> and strangely, so does my ain't it cool. Oh, sc scary. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I okay. was, uh, since I can book, see what it is ending. on our list, we'll get to that. Yeah. yeah we're we're bookending the whole show with this. Okay, cool. Cool. So um, one of the things, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because there's been so much in the press about this, but um, one of the things that came out of last week's uh, sub disaster was the use of a Logitech game controller as the, I guess it's the piloting mechanism uh, mm -hmm. for the device. Yeah. Um, personally, I find it, admittedly, it's dark humor, but mm. I find it wonderful that the there's a photograph of the game controller on the sea of the, uh, on the, uh, the bed of the ocean, that mm. it survived. Right? Yeah. It's this cheap Logitech game controller, and it somehow survived the implosion. People are, are basically throwing a lot of shade at that. And I certainly am not going to say that the guy was, um, you know, designing subs properly. There's a lot of argument that says he wasn't. But, um, and it's very possible that this is a symptom of his approach to design. However, what I'm finding, what I, what I stumbled into uh, just actually just shortly before this, uh, before we started recording, is a, a TikTok video from an actual submar submariner, submariner, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. I think I saw it. the same video, yeah. Oh, okay. So she was talking about yes. um, the the fact that, well, yeah, uh, we use them too um, in actual you know, military uh, submarines. Uh, they just call it commercial off the shelf is the phrase that, that, that um, that's about as far as I got in the TikTok because it was time to come here. Oh. But, um, <laughs> but it was interesting to understand that, well, yeah, they're used in a lot more than games in a lot more different places. Sometimes it really is the right solution. I'm not going to claim that it was the right solution for this submarine. But on the other hand, um, just the fact that it was there is not in itself all by itself an indication that things were uh, were really that screwed up. I just thought it was interesting because, yeah, you know, if you've got something that's commercial and it's off the shelf and it solves the problem properly, well, yeah, let's use it. Uh, why reinvent the, the wheel or the game controller? Yeah, well, and actually game controllers are built to take a beating because yes. <laughs> think about it. I mean, these things are meant to be put in the hands of uh, kids and adults. Uh, that are going to mash those buttons so many times. Yes. Right. <laughs> it, you know, it rapid speed and they have to, boy, it, I mean, the margin of error is almost nothing, right? I right. mean, if you're playing a game, you can't have it miss one in a hundred, one in a thousand, one in 10,000 right. presses. Right. No, you don't want it to miss any presses, right? You want it to, and you want it to be super quick and you want it to last um, and they do. I don't think I've ever, I'm sure people have bro broken game controllers. I've never broken a game controller before the console that it's, it's part of has become outdated and I've moved on to another one. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but you know, yeah. So you, you already have this industry that produces these things that can take a beating, keep working and are built to just work really well. Uh, and, and why go and try, you know, like that in that video, the TikTok video you're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, why re spend a ton of money to reinvent that and probably fail to do build something as good mm -hmm. as this, mm -hmm. this uh, controller that's been tested. I mean, you have to think of it as an evolution, right? A game controller you get today is not something it's like that was developed from scratch. It's 
the next you know species down from all of the game controllers that came before it yes and problems and mechanisms and things that haven't worked or haven't lasted have been discarded in favor of better ones and yeah of course i i've heard of game controllers using all sorts of uh interesting uh situations certainly uh controlling uh drones mm-hmm. uh, we're not talking about the fun photo drones we're talking about military drones right. things like that where it just makes sense to have um you know a, a use one of those instead of uh you know, developing your own whole system. I think, um, yeah, lots of military, uh, I don't think there, there are fighter jets that fly with them, but I think <laughs> there are there are lots of other things that use uh, these game controllers. And uh, I suspect that parts. there's probably a different set of criteria for life critical systems and such as, which, you know, as would make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I hadn't really thought about the fact that game controllers have to be pretty much indestructible yeah. Uh, just to do their job normally, right? To do what they're designed for. Um, maybe it's not that surprising that the game controller survived um, because it's probably survived right. so many, so many different things from, yep. you know, eight, eight, the, the tantrum of an eight-year-old to the frustration of a 32-year-old. I mean, who knows? Yeah, I can't, I would imagine if there was some statistics uh, kept, like trying to think of some of the bigger games that I've played, like on, on an Xbox console, like uh, Halo or, mm-hmm. you know, Witcher 3 or whatever. And it's just like, Boy, if there was like a counter, how many times I pressed each button, you know, just while playing the 60 hours or 120 hours of that game. Right. That's got to be an extreme number and a number probably far greater than any key on my like computer keyboard. And, you know, that's probably pretty high, too, considering, you know, we both make a living off of typing on our computer keyboards uh, compared to some other people. But I think the game controller is just, you know, even far like maybe a level of magnitude above that. So. Well, and and to be to be fair, um, the cost of failure of our keyboard is probably a lot less high, you know, a lot lower than the cost yeah. of failure of a of a game controller, uh, even mm-hmm. in a game. Right, it gets very frustrating. It gets frustrating if you if your keyboard breaks, but you can quickly replace it. and You haven't lost your place in the game. Right. On the other hand, I was thinking about it that um, you know, as much as you and I use our keyboards, uh, there's another scenario on the PC that probably you know, uses them even more heavily. And that is back to gaming, PC gaming. If you're, if you're doing online or, you know, some of the massively Mm -hmm. multiplayer stuff, be it Fortnite or Warcraft or any of those kinds of things. Yeah. You're pounding on your keyboard uh, pretty well as well. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's that's probably one of the differences when you see like uh, gaming keyboards. I know one is kind of like the feel of it, right? Right. Uh, to make it feel a little bit more controller-like in the buttons and the, you know, the AWSD and the, you know, arrow keys and stuff. But mm-hmm. probably also those keyboards, they need to they need to last. A little bit tougher, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Speaking so, of games. Yeah, yeah. speaking of games. Uh, so this is kind of weird because in the last week or so, there have been a bunch of unrelated news stories that are kind of linked by theme, which is really fascinating to me. It's it's game news, but games that use retro consoles or are somehow retro in other ways. Uh, and I'll start off with one that there is going to be the first Atari 2600 cartridge released in more than 30 years. Who's releasing it? Atari. Oh, they're still around. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 uh, whoever, you know, owns the Atari name. I know the company has changed so much, but, um, yeah. So there's a game coming out 
And, you know, this is a weird one to start on, but it's called Mr. Run and Jump. And it's coming out as an Atari cartridge on July 31st. So the interesting thing about this is actually there are two games. There's the game that you can get right now, I believe, and play on Steam, on your computer. And mm -hmm. I think it's on some other consoles. Um, that's a very it's a it's a platformer, 2D platformer running around kind of thing uh, game that has modern graphics. And the Atari characters, of course, cannot have modern graphics. Right. <laughs> uh, but so it's a version of it. And it's kind of a gimmick. I mean, yeah, I don't know why you'd want to play this rather than the uh, the, you know, one you can play on your computer um, with the modern graphics. But it is interesting that it is going to be a cartridge, the real thing, manufactured, plastic case, the whole deal, uh, even like the, the way the cartridge looks is, you know, like the ones that were produced so long ago. And it's going to cost 60 bucks because it's like a novelty item. I mean, I don't think, right. you know, they're planning on selling a million of these. I think this is kind of like when you when you go and you your favorite band comes out with a with some vinyl and it's like, you know, purple vinyl with stripes or, you know, something and a right, cool, right. you know, you know, it's like you get that because it's like, oh, you're such a big fan and you want to have this special limited edition. Vinyl you never, you never open it up. Yeah. Uh, if you actually want to listen to the music, you go back to Spotify. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So this is, you know, this cartridge actually will work in the Atari 2600 if you've got one. And they're not hard to come by, actually, because they there were so many of them. Mm -hmm. And they they held up pretty well. So it's it's not that hard if you want to buy or, you know, find somewhere on eBay or a garage sale or something, an old 2600. Um, so that was that's interesting. The uh, other stories, there's, there's also kind of a new Game Boy cartridge. <laughs> so this isn't quite the same, right? This isn't quite like there's actually like Nintendo's coming out with a Game Boy cartridge. The deal is, is that there is a game that was produced uh, for a promotion with McDonald's. Uh, Grimace's birthday is it what it's called. Mm -hmm. And I guess they hired a company that specializes in doing like cool retro stuff. And they cr created this as a Game Boy game that can run at emulators. And one of the places you can play it right now for free is just on the web, like in a regular web browser. Mm -hmm. And it's just being run inside of, you know, there's these emulators that can run inside of web browsers now right. written in JavaScript, and it could run in that. But the game is built to be a genuine Game Boy game. So people have been able to take the, the code there and either run it in a real emulator or run it using some hardware that actually downloads it into a you know like a simulated cartridge and play it on a on a real game boy so it's kind of interesting that you know new a new game boy game there have been other similar things like uh uh there's a game that i've played uh i believe it's called nox archaist um and it, i'm just i'm just a little little iffy on the pronunciation and it's an adventure game that you can play on your computer uh, and it looks a lot like the Ultima series of games, the early ones, like mm -hmm. Ultima 3 and Ultima 4, which I loved. Those were a huge part of my childhood, those games. And Noxar Chaos is meant to be like that, so much to the point that they're actually developed for the Apple II. And you run them on your computers today. Basically, they're enclosed inside of an emulator. So you're playing the game. And it looks like retro. Mm -hmm. It's actually written in, app, in Apple II code, 
and run in an emulator and then on your modern Mac or Windows computer. Um, so it's so it's kind of the same thing with that Grimace game, you know, where they built it using code that would run on the original device, uh, even though you're, you know, most people are going to just play it in the web browser. Um, so that's kind of interesting, but a whole different level. Uh, Nox Arcaeus is actually a huge, massive adventure game with uh, expansion packs and books that you could buy and maps and all sorts of stuff. You know, we're talking, you know, I don't know how many hours of play, if, if it is even more than an hour of play, the Grimace game is, but Nox Arcaeus is probably, you know, one of those things that you could spend uh, a large amount of time. Exploring yeah, okay. the world. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, at the article and some of the screenshots right now, and I can see where that's going. Yeah, yeah. So that's really cool. Uh, and I thought, and I thought I'd mention that. that's not new. Um, but uh, what else is uh, there? Oh, so there's a new Super Mario Brothers game called Wonder that's coming out. Now, this is going to play on the latest Nintendo console. But what's interesting about it is that. It's going to be retro in how you play it all the way back to the original Super Mario Brothers. So it's a 2D scrolling platformer. Mm -hmm. It's going to use more advanced graphics and it's going to have some really cool things. I've seen some of the video of it, but a lot of stuff in that world has really been very 3D based recently. And right. there are, in fact, new things coming out all the time that are 3D based. I think there's a new game coming out this year as well that's a 3d based uh mario game but this is they're actually going back and and kind of i don't know the, the people that miss the i guess these i, I don't want to say simplicity because it's not really that simple but maybe the paradigm of you know scrolling left to right going through a world and and all of that there's only so many times you can play the original games and you know like what's in every level what's around everything so so it's kind of neat, uh, Super Mario Brothers Wonder, and that's getting a lot of a, attention for that. Um, so yeah, I, I did want to mention as a footnote to the Atari cartridge thing, I, I have read most of a book, I'm kind of reading it here and there, uh, called the Atari 2600 at the Dawn, or it's called, sorry, Adventure, colon, the Atari 2600 at, at the Dawn of Console Gaming. And it's a book about uh, the history of the Atari 2600, but broken down game by game so it's game specific hmm. so each cartridge that came out whether it was by atari or activision or whoever um there's sometimes a half a page sometimes several pages about it about who who wrote it what would you know what, what was going on what makes it special uh how maybe how it was reviewed maybe what was you know interesting or even just mentioning things like how well you know this the atari 2600 basketball game was like the first home basketball game that you could play on your you know as a as a uh, video game mm -hmm. and how it's descend you know it started there and we already you know we go all the way to the current ones um that kind of thing it's really interesting and especially if you're uh, into tech and programming and learning about like the limitations of those early games because if you look at a lot of those atari games if you're around during that time the early games seemed really simple and then some of the later games got more complex and the atari 2600 didn't change the early games were what it was supposed to be it was what that's like the design spec play you know make games like this mm -hmm. And then as the programmers got better and better at tricks and figuring things out 
and little hacks that could make it seem like the you know the Atari 2600 was more capable than it really was or you can put things inside the cartridges that would expand on what the 2600 had um you could get more complex games and you know by the end of the heyday it looked like it was like a whole other, it looked like a different console you know it looked like there was an original tar tar 2600 where you would play things that were just a little bit above pong mm -hmm. um and then there was like the later Atari 2600 where you actually had things like raiders of the lost ark where you go around different screens and the the characters actually look like people kind of blocking right. people right. and all that but it's the same console it's the same hardware <laughs> So, so really interesting uh, to hear about the technical details of like how they were able to pull things off. And then once one cartridge was able to do something, then that just became standard, you know? Right. And now all the cartridges had to have that extra bit in it <laughs> and then, you know, figure out another thing. So anyway, uh, cool stuff. Uh, I recommend that book to anyone interested. Funny, because the first, well, I saw the word um, in our notes, adventure. And yeah. it, uh, I'm assuming that's one of the games they talk oh, about. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because I believe Adventure, classic Colossal Cave Adventure, yeah. is the first computer game that I ever played. Mm. And I believe I played it on a mainframe. I believe I was introduced to it on the CDC 6400 mainframe at the university, uh, which is kind of kind of freaky when you think about it, because that thing has been implemented everywhere. Um, I then uh, managed to get a copy. I think I ended up purchasing it for the Apple II, my first per the first computer I owned. So yeah. I was playing it at home. Um, and uh, and then of course uh, it showed up at work. What was interesting about the uh, about the Apple II version is it had been ported to the Apple II, I believe, by someone um, at Microsoft. Uh, and in oh. fact, it was sold for a while. I don't remember if it was sold for the PC. The PC version, I think, was sold through Microsoft for a while, um, and it was his port. It was Gordon Letwin uh, was the was the guy who actually did the port, um, and I ended up chatting with him briefly at one point. But it was kind of funny that uh, you know this one this one game um, that has so many cultural icons within the tech community, mm. um, you know, phrases. I ran a, where was it? Oh, I was watching something and the phrase, a twisty path, a twisty maze of passages all yeah. alike happened to come across. It just came up. Right. And you knew that that was an inside joke, right? It, there wasn't enough context there to really tie it to the game, but everybody who ever played the game cottoned onto it right away. Right. Um, uh, you know, uh, things like X, Y, Z, Z, Y and Plug and so forth. These are things that we all remember uh, from having played that game way, way, way back in the day. Yeah. I think the first it, Colossal Cave being the first uh, one has all those little things. Um, mm -hmm. The and then Z the original Zork, Zork, yep. which was basically a commercial, you know, remake of Colossal right. Cave. I mean, it was a new thing, but but that also has a lot of little phrases in it mm -hmm. that you'll hear repeated in pop culture. little inside things, and then you know the the game adventure, which you know was a graphic graphical game on the 2600 mm. um and not really related to those other two text games but did have kind of that same feeling where there's a bunch of little cultural references to like how you know the dragons look like ducks and uh <laughs> you know the green castle and yellow castle and all that stuff and things like that so yeah yeah nostalgia a lot of this i mean everything i've been talking about really a lot of it's got to do with the nostalgia Right. Uh, you know, right. uh, going back to whether it's the Super Mario Brothers 2D 
just having a Game Boy type cartridge uh, um, to play, uh, getting a new Atari cartridge. I'm sure anybody that's collecting uh, Atari 2600 stuff is probably going to want to get this just because, I mean, it's been 30 years since there's been a cartridge. So, yeah. You know, put it's that funny. On your it's, wish list for Christmas. It's unfortunate the K's not with us, our former co-host yeah. K, because this is this is his wheelhouse. This he's got a, I believe he's got another podcast on this topic specifically for the Atari and, and a few other things. So and on those those text adventure games too. He has a huge podcast on like going through those with a friend. Uh -huh. uh, those like Zork adventure games and stuff. So yeah. <laughs> so moving on. Yeah. Um, so first a caveat. Um, yes. most of you all know that I drive a Tesla in my defense. I purchased it before, um, Elmo kind of went sideways and yes, I refer to him as Elmo these <laughs> Elmo. days because I, 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 I just don't want to talk about the other name. Um, however, uh, this is something that I honestly would not have predicted. One of the, uh, reasons that Tesla is as successful as it is. There's a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is because they invested in their supercharger network. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the big obstacles to electric vehicle adoption is, of course, called range anxiety. And by building out this network, um, they made it possible for people to make like long, long road trips uh, in their Teslas. I've done it. I've driven to Salt Lake City and Colorado a couple of times in my Tesla. And and it's been a fine, fine experience. There's been plenty of places to charge up the old batteries um, as I needed to, as I made myself, uh, you know, across country. Tesla's supercharger is still the largest network of electric vehicle charging stations in the United States and possibly, possibly worldwide. Um, don't quote me on that one. Um, but what's interesting, and again, what I never would have predicted is that a number of vehicle manufacturers have uh, basically licensed or adopted, I'm not even sure if there's a licensing uh, thing going on here, uh, the actual Tesla connector, the actual power connector that you plug into your car to charge. There have been three, four, five different competing standards, and that has been one of the obstacles to uh, to test to um, electric vehicle adoption because not only did you have to find a charger, but the charger had to have the right connector for your car, or you had to have a, an adapter, and adapters weren't always available for everything to everything else. Um, now it looks like, given the number of vehicle manufacturers, and this includes like GM and Volvo and a couple of other really big ones, um, that are basically adopting what is be, be now being called the North American charging standard connector, um, it may just kick off. Uh, the, the other change, of course, is that uh, Tesla has or is in the process of opening up their superchargers to other vehicles, to non-Tesla vehicles. But with the adoption of the NACS adapter, we'll end up seeing uh, more of the Tesla style connectors at non-Tesla charging stations. The article that got my attention, uh, brought it up today, was uh, at electric.co. It's ChargePoint joins the Tesla NACS. And that ChargePoint is one of the large uh, nationwide, and I think they might even be international. They might even be into Canada. I'm not sure. But they are another of these large um, charging networks 
uh, that have chargers in all sorts of places. If I'm not mistaken, they might be the one that has a deal with Kroger. So if you find um, mm -hmm. like out, out here in the West, um, you'll find charging stations at um, uh, Fred Meyer, which is a local store here that's mm. actually owned by Kroger. Uh, you know, it's very, very common to find those kinds of charging stations out there. Um, getting those Tesla enabled will not only allow, of course, Teslas to charge at those places, but if all the other cars now are going to have Tesla chargers or Tesla adapter Tesla sockets, I guess, would be the way to put it, the NACS standard. Um, finally, finally, I think we're converging on something that will remove yet another barrier to EV adoption. Anyway, like I said, I never expected this to happen. Uh, Tesla always seemed like a close to the vest, keep it all private kind of company. But I think they're making a wonderful, wonderful decision here by not only making the uh, the standard available to everybody uh, and opening up their own chargers to non-Tesla vehicles. But I think that the other companies are making a wonderful decision to, you know, basically mm -hmm. centralize on the, uh, on the Tesla charger. What's yeah. ironic um, is that for many people, myself included, um, I never charge anywhere else, but home in my garage. Mm. Uh, I think that's one of the, one of the um, mental mindset changes that I think a lot of people have struggle with when they get an electric vehicle for the first time. Um, you generally, uh, you know, if you're just using it day to day for whatever it is you do, going to work, going shopping, that kind of stuff, you never end up having to charge it anywhere else, but in your garage. Um, it's, you treat it more like a cell phone, right? You, you, right. Take, you take it home, you plug it in. And then the next morning it's got a full quote unquote tank, a uh, tank of electrons, I guess, <laughs> um, that, you know, is ready to, to run your day. It's really only in those long haul cases where you're uh, planning on driving significantly more than your, uh, your car's rated range, at which point then yes, charging stations become significant. And absolutely, if you're doing something long, like I did to Colorado, yeah, there were three or four stops along the way each time to top off the tank. But, um, but day to day, um, it's actually significantly less of an issue than most people think it is. Anyway, I just like the idea of the, of another barrier to uh, EV adoption being removed. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm just tickled. Yep. Yeah, definitely a step in the right direction. Uh, let's see. So let me go from being tickled to being, <laughs> I, I, I've got it written down as my grump, as my old man moment. Um, you know, yeah. we're talking about um, how we were using these computers from, you know, decades ago to play these games. And when uh -huh. you think about it, you know, the amount of storage they had was infinitesimal compared to uh, what we have today. And indeed, every couple of years for the last, for, you know, since the beginning of the computer age, uh, we've all gone, oh my gosh, this disc is so big. Oh mm. my gosh, this disc is so big. What caught my attention this morning was an article out at tomshardware.com where they're talking about the Western Digital Blue 8 terabyte hard disk. It's a, a traditional hard disk, spinning platter hard disk. Um, and they refer to it as being entry level entry level eight terabytes yeah when is eight terabytes <laughs> entry level i mean yeah that just that just amazes I, me I actually, every time that happens i actually just did a video um related to this it's actually i don't think it's i've published it yet um but getting a, a time machine backup drive for your mac 
Okay. And, and the, the, the whole idea in the video is I see people make the same mistake over and over again, where they get too small of a drive, or it's yes. not that they get too small of a drive. It's just that they see something like a four terabyte drive and they're like, oh, that's fine. Without realizing that going a little bit more barely costs anything extra. Right. Um, and specifically a lot of people going for SSDs, which really top out at four terabytes, if you want right. to spend a lot, two right. terabytes for a reasonable one and saying, oh, but SSD is better than HDD. So I should get that. When in fact, what they should be doing is getting a much larger spinning drive right? Um, because they're not thinking of the, the fact that Time Machine saves a history of your files. And it's going to keep growing and growing and all of that. They think, mm -hmm. oh, I'm using 1.5 terabytes now. A two terabyte drive will be fine for backup. And it does, that's not the way it works. And in doing that video, I wanted to show how like, okay, so what what size should you get? Okay, uh, figure out how much space you're using now, multiply it by two, that's your minimum, right? right? So like if it's 1.5 terabytes of data, uh, well, first then maybe go and think, well, what would it be next year or the year after that? Okay, two terabytes. Okay, so <laughs> multiply by two, four terabytes, that's your minimum. What should you get though? Should you get the minimum? Uh, well, look at the prices. Going from a four terabyte drive, like an external spinning drive, mm -hmm. to say a six or eight, really doesn't cost that much more. Right. And yep. I looked at it, and there's kind of a curve, and it's it's worked this way for a long time. Yep. There's a curve where it gently goes up, and you're getting better and better, like price per terabyte, mm -hmm. until you hit kind of a upper limit. And then it the high shoots up because now you're on the cutting edge. The current maximum size drive is always incredibly expensive. Yes, yes, exactly. And so I found that you could go all the way up to 18 terabytes now on like a Western <laughs> digital draw external drive. Wow. And we're only adding like about 20 bucks per like two terabyte increment. Matter of fact, I think the 18 terabyte drive is 299. Wow. Nice, right. But then when price drives for a while, can you tell? <laughs> yeah. But then when you jump to 20 terabytes, suddenly it shoots up and it was like, you know, it was like a hundred dollars more. And then right. they have a 22 terabyte version that was much more like, you know, the curve <laughs> went all the way up like in a hockey stick. Right, um, right. But yeah, so it's interesting. And I always, when I buy drives for something like backup, I usually look along that curve and say, where does the inflection point happen? So like right, right now, I it, and I'd say in the video, if I, I have a 12 terabyte drive now for my backup, because I've had it for years. And that's where that inflection point was when I bought it. Today, right. I would buy the 18 terabyte one because why not? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna save like, oh, for 50 bucks less, you know, I can get it yeah a 14 terabyte drive or whatever. No, forget it. I'll just spend $300, 18 terabyte drive. I can save a super long history and, you know, never have to worry about not having a version of a file at any point, you know, the whole time. So yeah, it is eight terabytes entry level. Yeah, I could, I could kind of see, maybe that's a stretch right now. I'd still say four terabytes is the entry level. Right. Well, uh, this is this is, and obviously this is a new drive. It's probably coming in at a lower price, which is probably getting them to, uh, to to make that statement. But yeah, um, yeah, the it's uh, and I do exactly as you do. Um, when I'm in the market for a, a backup drive for a replacement backup drive, as I was, I think the last time I built out my desktop, I did that. Um, that inflection point that you're talking about 
Uh, absolutely. I, I've seen you've seen that over and over again, probably for decades, actually, since since uh, hard disks have been getting made. Um, and when I bought it, I think the inflection point was right at that six terabyte level. So that's what I've got on my desktop, a six terabyte external drive that I'm using for um, and it's dedicated to uh, the backup software that I run. Um, and and you're, you're when you were talking about SSDs. Yes, um, SSDs are so cool. They are more expensive, and obviously they have you know more size constraints, and they are completely wasted on backup disks. Yep, because you don't need the speed. Um, you're not getting any write speed, really, which is what backups usually are, right? You're you're streaming data to the drive, and SSDs aren't particularly faster than HDDs when it comes to writing. It's only when you're reading which you're not really doing that much of with a backup drive. So um, you can spend um, a lot less money and get a lot more space on uh, by by going to uh, spinning magnetic. Right. Um, and uh, another point uh, is, you know, people say that durability, oh, there are no moving parts in an SDD um, or an SSD. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is, so you're spending money on durability. You don't necessarily need that durability on a backup drive. On your internal drive, that's great, right? Yeah. Keep your machine running and humming yeah. along. But if a backup drive fails, the chances of it failing and at the same time, the actual internal drive failing right. are you know, extremely improbable. So the failure of a backup drive is actually one of the easiest things to fix. Right. You go, you order a, another backup drive. <laughs> guess when it over. arrives, you plug it in, <laughs> and and that's that's all you need to do. And then if you if you're saying, well, wait a minute, what? How about that remote possibility that both could fail at the same time? How about the possibility that I have a failure in that one day when I'm waiting for the new backup drive to arrive? Well, if that's your concern, your answer is not SSD. Your right. answer is second backup online. Right. Yep. yep. So yeah. If you're ever in a situation where you're concerned about losing data, mm. you don't have enough backup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's that, it, it really is that simple. But that, um, yeah. Uh, you know, if like you said, if there's a window where you've got all of your data in only one place, you don't have a backup and you mm. probably want one. Even if you do something um, temporary, interim, while that drive you know, uh, is, uh, is on its way over, um, do something. Um, but yeah. Yeah, totally agree. So anyway, that was my, like I said, my my old man moment. Um, and it keeps coming up every few years. It's like, oh my gosh, how bigger drives now? Oh my gosh, how yeah. bigger drives now? How cheap is this drive that's just huge? I don't know. Anyway. Um, so time for some ain't it cool. So I mentioned earlier that. Um, I had an ain't it cool that dovetailed really, really nicely with the John Lennon AI mm -hmm. kerfuffle. Yep. And that is um, a YouTube channel, although I also see them on TikTok, called There I Ruined It. And what There I Ruined It does is it um, is, I, I have no idea who it is, but it is someone that essentially either mashes up things that should never be mashed up <laughs> or um, actually redoes certain things um, in the... Re redoes the work of one artist in the voice of another or reworks one artist singing a slightly different song. So uh, examples are the best way to go here. Um, I believe the song Baby Got Back came mm -hmm. out after Elvis passed away. Mm -hmm. However, one of his videos is literally Elvis singing Baby Got Back. 
and it is um, funny and spooky. Now, absolutely, he's using some form of AI to make this happen. This is this is the AI that that you know the kerfuffle was really all about. Uh, yeah. We're making we're making individuals sing things that they never sang and they honestly probably never would have sung. Um, but Elvis singing "Baby Got Back" is kind of funny. Um, there's a version of Mer My uh, Miley Cyrus mm -hmm. singing "Party in the USSR." Remember her big hit years yeah. ago was "Party in the USA." And then there's bizarre this bizarre back mashup of Nickelback and Ray Charles, mm -hmm. which um, it sounds like a mashup made in hell, but in reality, it actually sounds better than you think. Um, uh, so Ray Charles actually makes Nickelback better if such a thing is possible. <laughs> um, so anyway, there's a bunch of different stuff there. Uh, he just, he plays with it. He, he auto tunes the heck out of stuff. He makes all sorts of people sing all sorts of interesting things. There are some videos where he's just taking all of the non word um, utterances of a singer mm. in a song and stringing that all together, um, which apparently is really good for Michael Jackson. Um, there's just a, a bunch of stuff like that. Anyway, there I ruined it. There's a link to the YouTube channel um, in the show notes. And like I said, he's on TikTok as well. I'm sure he's other places. Um, it's just one of those things where, okay, here's the other extreme of AI and music and the kinds of things that you can do with it. Yeah, cool. Um, for me, I've been uh, watching almost on the new season of Black Mirror which we've, we've talked about Black Mirror before, certainly. I don't think you can do a show like this without talking about Black Mirror, but it has been a while since there's been a new season of Black Mirror. Mm -hmm. And this is five episodes, uh, various lengths. Um, so uh, I've watched four out of the five episodes and uh, loved the first episode, which is the one what? getting all the attention. Weren't you uh, saying that that one was giving you some nightmares? <laughs> well, Black Mirror does. Oh, okay. Black Mirror is te it's tech horror uh done it's it, i mean yeah you know it's like you watch horror movies and you you kind of rate them on how much you how much fun they were right but if they're really horror movies they shouldn't be fun they should be scary right <laughs> uh, so the thing is that no i don't find most horror movies actually scary except that a few episodes of black mirror have scared the heck out of me so um in this season, though, so far, nothing like that that has scared the heck out of me. But I did very much enjoy the first one, uh, Joan is Awful. And it does involve a lot of the stuff that we were talking about, about AI and, in fact, uh, you know, creating things, creating uh, whether it's songs or uh, voices or, you know, uh, whatever, it, you know, is involved in that. And so it's really good. Um, but it's hard to talk about. I guess we we should for things like that we need to like go go with the rule of uh, what is it like six weeks or three months or whatever for spoilers. Uh, it's the like spoiler hey, window. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk about it later. But and then the rest of the season, you know, as I said, I've watched three more episodes, and two of them I found to be eh. You know, it wasn't. It was kind of tedious, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of them I did find to have uh, another one I did find to be pretty good. So so far, no, you know, huge winners like some of the past seasons. But certainly, if uh, you're a fan of uh, you know Twilight Zone type stuff with uh, deep roots in in tech, although not always in tech, and right. one of the ones in particular is not involving tech at all. Um, so yeah, uh, good to it's see. Interesting. 
I've only making. watched, I think I've watched one episode of Black Mirror from the first season, and I don't know why we set it aside. It might be because it wasn't my wife's cup of tea, Yeah. Um, but I'm going to have to add it back to my queue because um, I keep hearing such good things about it. If um, anything, uh, you know, there was, there were all the different seasons, and then there's the standalone Netflix movie called Bandersnatch, mm -hmm. which won a uh, an Emmy. Um for i don't know i can't remember what the emmy was for but it was very deserving it is something you watch on netflix you can't watch it on apple tv because apple tv doesn't have this feature but if you watch it on like a roku box mm -hmm. or saw a lot of smart tvs it allows you to use your remote to pick what happens next right choose your adventure i remember that i was wondering if that was and it is it is brilliant matter of fact i thought it was brilliant and i thought well i guess i'm the only one and then it won an emmy i'm like oh i guess i'm not the only <laughs> one uh that that was brilliant and especially considering you know even after even after you go through it once and you, you choose it you think oh that was really cool um and then you just start to you know look online and see well what were the other options and then you realize that wow it could go in some completely different directions that that are amazing and i think i went through it three times i was going to say that seems like a, a, i don't want to call it a ploy but that does seem like a really good reason to rewatch it and make sure. different decisions every time oh yeah and and i think the the best thing is to watch it once know nothing about it just pick whatever you want you right. know and then after that experience and you read about some of the stuff online and people have it plotted out with different with flow charts and everything i was going to say um, there's got to be a decision tree online somewhere. yeah yeah <laughs> so you go you're looking at that and then kind of decide on like oh i'd like to see i'd like to see this here how do i get there and then you know watch it a second time with that in mind and then maybe a third time because you want to see another kind of conclusion to it um and uh yeah yeah it's really cool matter of fact it, it's almost time to rewatch that and try another <laughs> another selection well once i uh, i finish my current series that i'm watching while i exercise in the mornings i'll probably switch to black magic or a black uh, mirror yeah. i'm currently finishing the uh, third season i'm in the middle of the third season of umbrella academy oh yeah okay um, and I, apparently there's a fourth season coming. They've they've mentioned a couple of people, oh, you know, stars that are going to be, uh, I don't know if they're going to be regulars or cameos, but it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But yeah, after that, I'll, I'll go back to, I'll switch over to Black Mirror. Cool. Uh, let's see. So it's time for some blatant self-promotion. Um, the article I'd like to point people at this week is, should I buy a new computer to fix malware? It's askleo.com slash 12197. Um, and I, I don't know if you run into this as much as I do, mm but i definitely hear from people that are they're in a situation where things are just messed up um sometimes it's malware sometimes they think it's malware sometimes it's something else um but they are just so frustrated with the state of their computer that they just want to start over and to them starting over means buying a new computer and um that is uh, almost always the wrong decision uh, for you know reasons I'm sure you can imagine. There, there are cheaper ways to start over. Um, so that's where I'm going to point people at. Should I buy a new computer to fix malware? Spoiler, no. <laughs> um, I did a video, uh, unusual for me, because I usually I do how-to videos and uh, talk about you know, the operating system and software and all. Mm -hmm. But I get asked so often about whether or not Apple's going to make another 27-inch iMac, because they had a smaller iMac and a 27-inch iMac, they were Intel. Those uh, went away and were replaced with a 24-inch M1 iMac. Mm -hmm. And that's the only iMac that they've had out now for a little while. 
And a lot of people have said a 24, you know, I'm, I have a 27 inch iMac. I don't want to go down to a 24 inch iMac. Um, will they come out with a new, uh, a new one that's got a larger screen? And we, the answer is we, we really don't know, but I could break it down in the video to, you know, what, what are the chances, like why you might not want to get your hopes up. <laughs> or, but you know, you you may not want to rule it out. Right. What the different things Apple may do, like why Apple may you know do some things and not other things, um, and also what are the alternatives now? Because you know a lot of people, uh, they a lot of people ask, oh, I've got this old twenty seven inch iMac. Can I buy a new Mac Mini and plug it into it and use the old iMac as a screen? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, no, because they're integrated. You can't do that. So maybe consider buying a Mac mini and the Apple studio display. Mm-hmm. And you may not want that, but think for a second, the Apple studio display you can use for this Mac mini right. and your next Mac mini right. and the Mac mini after that. So yep. exactly what you want now that you're like, oh, I can't do it. You could set yourself up for doing in the future, right? Um, which may make it more attractive and and I'm getting a lot of good comments. So I'm getting a lot of people saying they actually did decide to get either a Mac Studio or Mac Mini mm-hmm. and a display, mm-hmm. and now they're really happy with that decision. Right. Uh, that's something I didn't expect when I published the video. So anyway, <laughs> I run through all sorts of different uh, scenarios and kind of give my percentage. Like, what are my percent chance that you know Apple is going to come out with something a bigger iMac in the future? Cool. It's yep. funny because it, it, when you don't think of it that often, but in reality, um, your monitor, mm-hmm. the display you purchase, and this is especially true for uh, Windows folks as well, um, it's actually worth a lot more thought and investment than most people give it. Because as you point out, it it will or can last much longer than the computer you happen to be using today. Mm-hmm. Um, the monitor that I'm looking at right now is a, a Dell, I think it's what, 36 inch curved thing. Um, but it predates my current computer. And in fact, I think it predates the computer before that. Uh, I think it's on its third, you know, the third machine that I've been using this monitor with. And it's great. It's just kicking right along. Um, it's, it's, it really, really works well. So, yep. yep. All righty. Uh, so I think that wraps us up for mm-hmm. yet another week. The show notes as always are out at tehpodcast.com slash teh197. If you've got a comment or a question for us, be sure to leave it there. Thanks as always for listening. And we will see you here again real soon. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.